Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Hello and you're very welcome to this extra edition of the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. On Tuesday, June the 26th, the Irish Times published an article by our columnist Fintan O'Toole with the headline, Trial Runs for Fascism Are in Full Flow. And you might want to go on to irishtimes.com and have a read of that before you listen to this podcast. In the days and weeks that followed its publication, that article remained on the most read list on irishtimes.com and last week it officially became the most read piece in the Irish Times' history. As of today, it has had more than 1.2 million page views, with almost half of those coming from the United States and another 18% or so from the United Kingdom. We asked Finton to come in to reflect on why this particular column seemed to strike such a chord. So, Finton, our listeners always expect us to ask the hard questions here in this podcast, so what do you ascribe your <laughs> staggering success with this column to? Um, well, I, I, I mean, you know from writing things that, you, of course, you have absolutely no idea when you're writing something whether or not, uh, you, you know, you assume there's some readers out there, but you've no idea whether something's going to take off in, in, in that way. If you did, of course, you'd write those pieces all the time. Sure, sure. Um, and so I suppose with, with a lot of these things, um, it, it's all about hitting a nerve somehow and you don't really know what the nerve is. I think with this piece, because I, I was sort of addressing, it was really coming out of the sort of horror and anger around the abuse of children uh, by the Trump administration uh, and the separation, the very deliberate separation of children from their parents and then the caging of those of those kids, which was a horror, absolute horror. And I think there had been a kind of media discourse around that then, which was this was a terrible mistake by the Trump administration. And what I suppose what I was trying to say is, hold on a minute here, folks, you know, we're kind of missing something here. This isn't a mistake. This is actually the way people are inured to things getting more and more outrageous. And, and that if you think about Trump, if you, if you study his whole career, I mean, he, he is an ignoramus, but he's not stupid and, and he has an instinct. And his instinct has always been, you know, push and then retract a bit and then push further again, you know. And he did this mostly in terms of his own business career, you know, and, and then in terms of his creation of the Donald Trump brand, you know, through the New York tabloids. I was, I worked for New York tabloid in the 90s, so I had some sense of this, you know. This is a guy who would ring up, you know, the the, the New York Post or whatever and, and put on a funny voice and, and tell them a salacious story about Donald Trump, you know, testing stuff, putting stuff out there. And he kind of understands this. And and as it happens, it, it sort of meshes with the methodologies of fascism. You know, fascism doesn't emerge out of the sky all of a sudden. You know, it's 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 a process of of market testing in a way. Yeah, and, and I want to come to the, yeah. the, the fascist thing in a minute, but just to zero in, you're, you're framing that very much inside the head of Donald Trump, although you make a reference to Salvini in, in, yeah. in Italy as yeah. well and some yeah. of the policies which the new government there is trying out or road testing or whatever they might be. But when we think about these moments, uh, the most recent one is the one with the children in the cages, yeah. but before that, I suppose Charlottesville and maybe before that, perhaps right at the outset of the administration, the Muslim ban. Yeah, um, yeah. 
we hear after these events occur that there's been, you know, some faction in the White House has pushed for this and they got it over the line and now it's been pushed back because, you know, because as you say, because there was a, there was a negative reaction. But you're saying, I'm just trying to understand exactly what it is that you're saying there here. You're saying that these are not failures. Yeah. These are the, these are successes on their own terms in terms of both softening the ground for 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 future actions and perhaps making what was hitherto hitherto thought of as unacceptable yeah. thinkable. Exactly. So I I mean if you look at the history <clears throat> of the far right and and how it comes to power and how it operates, you know, uh, it, it doesn't start out saying we're we're going to, you know, round up thousands or millions of people and kill them. You know, it it starts out by saying um, we're in ter- we're in terrible trouble. There's a terrible crisis. Only our great leader can can fix it. You know all that kind of stuff, and it's been caused by them, whoever them are. Um, and then it sort of you know graduates, and it it it's it's uh, one of the reasons why the far right can be very successful is that if you look at it historically, it's very adaptable. You know, so it's kind of a living organism. And it evolves in in particular situations, you know. So, one of the things people say is, "Well, this doesn't look like fascism in the 1930s." Of course, it doesn't. You know, it's a different different world. It's an entirely different context. But it looks like what fascism might have looked like in the 1920s and 1930s. It, it, you know, um, if, if, if you had the same kind of circumstances that we have now, so you've got this kind of organic beast which which learns to adapt to its environment, and the way it learns to adapt is by trial and error. You know, it's 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 kind of Darwinian, and so what has to be done is is this kind of constant testing, pulling back, testing again. And I think success in those terms, uh, how would they measure it? You know, what they would measure are really two basic things. Well, one is, was this okay with the base? And this doesn't mean, like, did, did 60% of people find this absolutely nauseating? That's not the point. In fact, that might be a good thing if the other 40% were delighted that, that 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 sixty percent was nauseated, you know, if it if it solidifies them in their sense of of solidarity with 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 themselves as a group, but also with the with the great leader, you know, that's that's kind of common stuff. And the other thing to test then is, will the propaganda machine be able to sell it? Um, so if, if you looked at Fox News during that week when the whole story about the children was was kind of gathering pace, I mean. If you were in the White House, you would be saying, wow, this is just phenomenally successful that they're all going out there, you know, and, and they're selling it in ways that we didn't even think of. Like, so did any of us actually think that Laura Ingram would go on Fox News and say, those children are actors, they're child actors. They're not really upset. They're just pretending to be upset because that's what these immigrant people do. Like even the children, even the two-year-olds are so manipulative and evil that they pretend to be upset when they're dragged away from their parents. I mean, you know, come on. I mean, did anybody think that that's the sort of stuff that you would see? So from both of those points of view, it, it, it was a huge success, you know, which, which was the base loved it. There was no movement at all downwards in, in Trump's core support. And the media stuff, if you were thinking at all about that, like if you were Steve Bannon or any of those people thinking about this, you'd say, wow, we can really go very far here, you know? next time it's going to be a little bit further, you know, and, and we know now we can trust those people. We can trust Rupert Murdoch particularly. Like this was Murdoch's empire saying, yeah, this is okay with us. And not only will we defend it, we'll defend it in the most lurid, extraordinary terms. So the next thing, you know, we, we start from that base, you know, we, 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 we move forward. It's very much this kind of 
you know, you 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 go you go two forward and one back, two forward one back. But the the you know after the two forward and the one back, you're you're starting one ahead. You know, you're 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 one little bit further down the road. People, people talk effort. about um, uh, a concept called the Overton window, which is about what is what are the acceptable limits of political discourse, yeah. civil political discourse yeah. that are acceptable on broadcast or yeah. general newspapers and that. And that shifting the Overton window is one of the projects which people from left and right, uh, you know, seek to do and, and, so. and happens from time to time. There, there are many things that uh, were perfectly commonplace in the Irish Times 50 or 60 years ago that wouldn't be acceptable in the Irish Times or any other newspaper yeah. in Ireland now. So that's always a, a contested area. But it seems to be particularly so... These days, it yeah. seems to be at the very heart of what's happening in politics, and I wonder how much of that has to do with the with the deep changes in information technology which have happened in the last fifteen years or so. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I think it's a really good point. You know, like it's perfectly legitimate in a sense to try to be shifting the bounds of the acceptable, because if the bounds of the acceptable never get shifted, then we stay in exactly the same mindset and nothing ever ever develops. Um, I think the big difference with 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 the stuff now is that. Uh, it's 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 shifting it through action first and then discourse, right? So so it's not like that you you try to change what you're talking about and then think about well maybe we could do it. It's 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 dramatic in the sense that you you show something. So it was actually really important that you showed children being taken away from their parents, and then you see how acceptable is that, and then you use that then to broaden the discourse and to 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 make the you know what previously could not have been said perfectly sayable and um i think absolutely this is this is um fueled to a large extent by social media by uh the sort of group group mentalities that you can create there by th- the way in which people are inured to outrageous statements you know so and again it's 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 to do with this sort of dramatization of everything you know social media helps to to, to dramatize stuff, you know, to to, sure. to make it very <clears throat> simplistic, to to turn up the volume, um, and and then to suck people into that, you know. So so it's participative. Therefore, it's not just that this there's this crazy person out there saying it. It's that you know thousands and possibly millions of people get sucked into that discourse and become used to it. Indeed, because one of the things I was wondering about rereading the piece today in advance of doing this podcast was you know using the word fascism yeah. and making that comparison. I mean, we've had Timothy Snyder on this podcast, who is both uh, one of the most brilliant scholars of yeah. of the Holocaust and of twentieth century totalitarianism, and is an incredibly strong voice against what's happening now and has drawn many, many parallels between the two and many of them are very illuminating and very interesting. But there is a sort of a countervailing argument which is that it can be a pitfall to fall into to try and draw um, comparisons that are too direct between what's happening now and what happened in the 1930s so everybody's going, is this our Reichstag fire moment? Is this the Kristallnacht moment? One of the huge differences it seems to me between what we broadly call fascism in the 1930s and now is that the, the former... Had, a, had an element of street violence to it, paramilitarism. There were yeah. there were murders and uh, riots and mobs on the street all the time, sort of enforcers for yeah. the National Socialist yeah. Party or Mussolini's fascists or whatever it may be. And we don't actually have that, despite the the the, the, the spark that was lit in Charlottesville was perhaps an attempt to do that, but we, we, we actually don't have that. Yeah. We don't see that. And maybe it's because all those emotions are now expressed through people's smartphones and through social media. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a really good point. Um, a couple of things there. That, uh, 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 like, 
I would completely agree that we've got to be incredibly careful about drawing these parallels. And I thought very, very carefully with this piece about just using the word, fashion, you know, because it is the F word and, and, and you, you know, dropping that F-bomb can be counterproductive because it sort of, you know, feeds into a kind of hysterical discourse. Yeah, it's know, been misused so often as well. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know. Yeah. If you're if you're if you're 15 and your parents tell you to go to your room, they're fascists, you know. <laughs> uh, so there is a kind of childishness about it. Uh, and uh, so I was very reluctant about it, and and, and I, I then thought very carefully about saying the word I want, the concept I wanted to kind of put across was pre-fascist, you know, which is almost saying, look, if, if, if imagine that we ended up with sort of far-right authoritarian regimes across Europe and North America. In, in, in 50, 60, 100 years time, people were looking back and saying, how did that happen? What's happening now is what you would expect to find in the sort of early days of that. Does this then mean in some sort of mechanical way that those early days lead to the late days? No, of course it doesn't. It, it just means that we should be aware of the fact that we're, we're, we're in a kind of phase which is, which is pre-fascist, right? And this is not at all then being deterministic about saying we can't stop this. So I wanted to get that sort of idea out there. Um, secondly, in terms of your point about what fascism looks like, uh, I mean, absolutely, academically, or, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, any proper historian will tell you that fascism has certain kind of characteristics. And a sine qua non of them is, is sort of the, the thugs on the street, the, you know, the guys in the shirts. Um, or I suppose in, even if you extend it a bit, usually it's a, it's a, it's a military, if you think about Franco-style fascism, I mean, a lot of people say, well, Franco wasn't a fascist because he didn't have the black shirts or the brown shirts or whatever. But that sort of big male armed gang thing is 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 generally seen as part of fascism, um, and you're absolutely right, of course, that it's 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 not an obvious part of what we're seeing. Although, however, I mean, there are. I mean, Trump is very deliberately using parts of that. I mean, using his rhetoric about the NRA, you know, during the election campaign, telling them that they could basically go and shoot Hillary Clinton, um, you know, trying to sort of imagine, in a sense, uh, you know, what what would a sort of armed gang look like, uh, you know, is, is very much out there. At the Trump rallies, you know, building up the air of violence, you know, the, the way in which, you know, Trump urging people to beat up protesters, you know, there are definitely elements of it there. But yes, in reality, I mean, are there, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of guys in red shirts going around America uh, on, on the streets of New York or Boston? No, there aren't. M my point would be that well, in a way, exactly the one you're making, that, that, that you know, it's not the 1930s. <laughs> and therefore, to expect that fascism would look exactly the same um, now as it did then would be incredibly foolish. Uh, you know, a lot of what we're seeing now is, is, is of course, uh, to do with social media. And I think it's a really well-made point that the, some of the energies, the mob, you know, can exist virtually. Uh, and that's absolutely true. But also, you know, stuff that's just more kind of commonplace, like television, for example, didn't exist in the 1930s as any kind of uh, social force. Uh, Al uh, although uh, those uh, movements very effectively used the modern media. They used radio, radio, for example. Was incredibly Precisely. powerful. So, so you would expect the equivalence to be to mm. be coming out of TV, which is exactly where somebody like Trump is coming from. If you look at Salvini, for example, in Italy, he's a brilliant, brilliant TV performer. You know, that's, that's, he uses television in the way that you would use your mass rally. It doesn't stop him doing the mass rallies, but, you know, they've a, they've a much wider palette of colours 
to draw from in in creating the sort of far right authoritarian picture, um, and, and we would be naive not to expect that to be the case. And 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 I think one of the difficulties is that people tend to fall into a certain kind of complacency about saying, "Ah, but look, it's only a guy on TV, or it's only a it's only a virtual mob. It's not a real mob." Well, it doesn't matter if the outcomes are are the same, you know, and. Um, the, the you know there's, there is a certain naivete about saying we have a certain kind of fixed checklist of what fascism looks like which is based on the 1920s and 30s and if we don't have that therefore we don't have the problem and we're just hyping it up uh, I think that is naive and, and I think it's dangerously naive So but taking all that on board what is the project of this political movement now and is it the same project once you strip away the stuff that we've talked about as existed in the in the 20s or 30s so i think i think that's a great question and i think in a way none of us quite knows the answer uh, and i think this is where there are different projects you know the the, the far right is not one thing uh, you know again one of its strengths actually is that it's very adaptable to you know incredibly protein isn't it completely yeah. protein you know and so um it, obviously there are some elements that are common you know the sort of appeal to nationalism uh the sense of self-pity, you know, the, the sense that uh, you're appealing to a particular kind of white male group who feel that their their status in society is is slipping. It's very like the 1920s, 1930s, you know, through the, the Great Depression and all of that. Uh, the identification of an out-group who were to blame. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's very interesting, isn't it, that anti-Semitism, for example, which made sense as a political project to Hitler, for example. You know, it's, it's there were Jews and they were visible in the society and they were uh, you know obviously there was a whole history of anti-semitism that you could draw on and it was a very effective political project of course it was one of, one of one of the great horrors of human history but if you were trying to do what he was trying to do then the jews were the obvious thing it's very interesting to see the way anti-semitism still turns up on the far right even mm-hmm. though now it doesn't make any sense i mean there are not loads of jews in hungary for example for orban to to make sort of well, I was going to say, still co- got banners co- with George Soros' face on them. And, not, not very coded, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, wh- why are the far right in in Charlottesville? Why were they, you know, chanting "Jews will not will not replace us"? You know. Mm. Uh, so the and DNA, thinly coded stuff about globalists. It's all that stuff. You know, it's the same same stuff that's yeah. kind of yeah. com- coming around again. Uh, and it, see, in a sense, it doesn't make any any. Uh, you know, the package doesn't doesn't cohere because uh, you know part of it is also being very pro-Israel and there's all this kind of stuff that's going on. Um, but it shows that the DNA is the same. So the organism has has has. Is, is protein and is adapting, but a lot of its DNA, I mean, comes out of the very same stuff. However, I, 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 that's kind of avoiding your your really hard question, which is what's the project? Right? Mm-hmm. And and I think, in a sense, one of the differences is that they don't they themselves don't really know what the project is. So, in the nineteen twenties or nineteen thirties, uh, I mean, Hitler and Mussolini, for example, know, knew exactly what the project was, right? You know, which is to take complete control of the entire society, build a sort of totalitarian nationalist regime, which then controls every aspect of people's lives and uses this to to mur- murder, you know, whoever it is you want to murder and has a kind of logic then that you go into a kind of world war, you know, to, to mobilize the full society and a kind of resurrection of, of a, you know, an imagined lost community, the building of a thousand year Reich, all that kind of stuff, you know, is very deliberate. Um, and horrendous as it is, it is sort of thought through and serious, right? They mean to do it. <laughs> mm-hmm. We're 
the difference now, I think, again, one of the reasons why it's kind of hard to get a grasp on is that we're in a kind of postmodern phase of this, which is, which is that all the gestures are being performed. And to some extent, they're, they're just pure gesture. Like the classic Trump appeal, you know, was, was two things, build a wall, get the Muslims, stop the Muslims coming in. He's been able to do neither of them. I mean, he's done the Muslim thing kind of symbolically, but but it makes very little real difference. And he's not going to be able to build a wall. Like the wall is no closer to being built. You know, the actual physical project is sort of different. So it's it's much more a rhetorical project, and it's much more about trying to roll back um, a sense that demographic change is such that actually you either do it now or it's over. Certainly in the States, you know, the, the real deep driver of this reaction is demographics. You know, it's a simple sense that if, if, if you are a sort of conservative white man, you, you are slipping into a minority. You know, it's, it's true. And your sense of having this kind of privileged existence that made you the absolute center of, of, of Americanism is over, you know, it's, and it's going to be over. So the panic that's coming is a sense that we have to do this now. We have to take control now. So the most kind of benign, if you can use that word version of this in the States, would be take control of the Supreme Court. That gives you 40 years maybe of, of, of being able to stop progressive change, um, get women back in their box, tell them to shut up, you know, create a whole kind of new culture where... The, you know, political correctness, so-called, is gone. So therefore, you can say what you like, that you'll be able to be racist again, that you'll be able to be anti-woman again, that you'll be able to put the gays back in their box. You know, it, it, that's the sort of benign version of it, yeah. which is sort of that it's linguistic and it's about sort of taking control of the language and of the law. The, the malign, as if that's not malign enough, the more malign version of it, of course, then is that you, you have to, inst- you know, you have to institutionalize this power. The problem, and Timothy Snyder, whom you mentioned, has been brilliant on this, which is, you know, what's your what's your succession plan? You know, how, how do you... So Trump has an inbuilt, um, uh, you know, sell-by date, you know, which is eight years, God help us, you know, if we can get through eight years. Uh, what's the succession? How do you institutionalize that kind of authoritarian change? And in order to do that, you you need to destroy the existing institutions. Well, you can't have democracy. You can't right? have democracy. Absolutely, That's, you can't. Yeah. I mean, so so you know, this is the thing that I think again, people have to reflect on that the the deep project is not fully articulated, not fully thought through. But if it's a demographic project, it's it's about a you know, it has to be about a minority controlling a majority. That's that's what it has to come down to. You know, mm. there's no other real truth to it. These people are outbreeding us, they're coming in, the liberals are betraying us, half our women have gone crazy and become lesbians. We have to create a situation in which those of us who are authentic, who are really white males and their spouses, get to control the thing. And exactly, as you say, that cannot be done democratically. It has to be done in an authoritarian way. It has to be done through violence. So do they understand the logic of this? I think they kind of do. But do they know how to get from where they are now to that point? And we have one wonders, one wonders where it goes. I mean, one of the things that strikes me about the, the history of the of the extreme right, uh, be it 
80 years ago or be it now is like all political movements it's a kind of a coalition to some extent and the sort of the take control of the Supreme Court element which you've talked about is kind of classic reactionary politics yeah, you know uh, people who, who feel their, their pre-existing position is under threat and are seeking to, to regain what they see as lost ground and there was plenty of that going on in the 20s and yes, 30s and the debris of the empires which had fallen apart and all of that but there's also in the far right it, it, it seems to me historically anyway um, a, another kind of a trend which is the you know the Eric Rome, the brown shirts, the uh, the the ra- the radical revolutionary yes. right, yes. the people who actually marched on Rome, and it's kind of it's that's imbued with a very different kind of a philosophy. You know, in Italy, in the case of Italians, it was imbued with futurism. Uh, it was uh, the brown shirts were full of former communists and former yeah. socialists, and so you you can kind of see that as well, perhaps in elements of of the kind of the vote for Trump with people who who uh, jumped directly from the Democratic Party to become Trump voters. You see that with the move to UKIP in the United Kingdom as well. And I just wonder where, how those how those two things become reconciled, or if they ever do, actually. They probably don't. Well, historically, they didn't. They just exploded in the end, didn't they? They do, yeah. I mean, so it's, it's um, you know, both the weakness and the strength of, of, of Trump, I think, lies exactly in that, right? Which is, so uh, the strength lies in his... Extraordinary ability. Like if you if you stand back from it, I mean, what he's done is absolutely breathtaking. You know, even two years ago, you know, if if you talked to you know well connected people in the states, including Republicans, they would tell you, look, don't worry about it. It's not going to be a big deal. Yeah, he's a big loudmouth. He's he's moving in. You know, we're just delighted. We got the liberals out. We'll do the Supreme Court. We'll you know we'll get control of some things. But effectively, you know, he's going to be just an American president. It's going to be like. You know, after a few years, you w- you wouldn't know the difference between him and Eisenhower. You know, it's, it's just going to be the same thing. You know, and he, everybody thought. I mean, you know, that that was really very much the sort of consensus among those kind of country club Republicans, and that's gone. He has he has destroyed them. I mean, you know, he owns them now, and what he's been able to do, and I think this is where the the, the pre-fascist thing is quite important. He's been able to get like highly. Remember, these are you know these are people who've been to Yale and. Harvard, mm. Princeton—you know—they think of themselves as highly educated, highly civilized people. Um, he's been so are able, they the equivalent of the Prussian Yunkers who put Hitler yeah, into power in 1933. Exactly, you know. Yeah. Uh, but the Prussian Yunkers were sort of coming out of uh, you know out of war and out of mm. out of the army. Remember, these people are no longer. I mean, in a previous generation, they would have been, of course, in the military, uh, but they're no longer doing that. Um, they're they're you know corporate. Uh, they're lawyers. They're you know they're 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 part of that kind of American establishment. And he has destroyed them. I mean, he, he, you know, what he's basically said to him, it, it says to them is, you, you, you buy this agenda whole, you know. You, you, you can't pick and choose. You can't have your Supreme Court nominee and not have me locking up children on the border, you know. And, and, and his instinct on this has been really, really powerful. And, uh, you know, I think I underestimated him. I think many of us probably did. It's not that he's smart. It's that he has a sort of feral instinct which is a sort of gambler's instinct, which is which is you double down, you 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 up the ante all the time, and you don't blink. You know, you 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 might withdraw occasionally a little bit, and then immediately you you're back. And of course, the social media thing has helped him enormously. And it's the Twitter the Twitter stuff can't be underestimated, you know, because it allows him to say something in a very tiny fragment. You know, get it out there, withdraw it if he wants in another fragment and then put it back out the next day. You know, it's it's that kind of stuff. But if you if you stand back from that kind of constant day-to-day stuff, you know, what, what he's done is he's he's owned them. And therefore, 
he's 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 left them with a huge dilemma, right? Which is, what happens when they've taken control of the Supreme Court? You know, what, what they wanted, they wanted the tax cuts. That's done. The Supreme Court stuff may well be done by by the autumn. Um, what happens then if they if they lose the the November elections? You know. Do they then say, well, actually, his his purpose is served. You know, he, he's got us it's the big long-term stuff that we wanted. Um, let's try and move away from him. Well, they, they would like to do that, but they, I don't think they can. Why not? Because I think the Republican Party base has become his base. All the polling shows that overwhelmingly, like 90% of Republicans approve of not just proof of Trump in general, but approve of his most outrageous things. I mean, 90% of Republicans approved of his summit with Putin. I mean, this is astonishing. A party, you know, at the center of it was, you know, national security. We are strong on national security. We stand up to the Russians, you know. Watching their president humiliate the entire nation, you know, in, 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 in front of a Russian president, basically out himself as a sort of, almost like a Russian agent. 90% of Republicans approved of this. So he he has taken them over. He's taken over their entire base. You know, even six months ago, there was a lot of talk that in the November elections, you know, people, Republicans would run against Trump. They're not doing it. No, that. that certainly didn't They're not doing happened. it. There's and they're no not doing it because they no. can't. He, he, he sort of got them into a corner where, where, where it's almost impossible for them to escape from him. Well, what do you think happens if they, if, and it's a very big if, I don't necessarily think it'll happen, but let's say they have a disastrous November election yeah. and, you know, lose the House and do very badly in the Senate. It seems well nigh impossible for them to lose the Senate, but we'll see. Um, what happens then? Surely that, that creates some kind of a, an alternative dynamic. Well, you know, I, I think it's crucial for the world that, that the Democrats take the House in, in, in November. You know, if, if, if they don't, you'd be then looking at a two-term Trump presidency. Um, and he's really only getting going with, you know, if you take my thesis, you know, that this is a trial and error, you mm. know, in terms of pushing it, pushing it, pushing it, uh, giving him more time to push it is is, is disastrous. Uh, I think you're right. If 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 they lose big time, um, then a certain panic sets in. But I don't think they know where to go at that stage. You know, my my sense, even from from talking to to sort of uh, people who would have regarded themselves as liberal Republicans, you know, is that they're they're stuck. You know, remember, uh, ridiculous as it may seem, a lot of these people looked to Paul Ryan, you know, as the alternative, the savior, the sort of respectable face of decent conservatism. Ryan's getting out. You know, so so I mean, you know, Ryan is just leaving politics. Um, so they don't have a standard bearer. They, they they don't have somebody who can actually stand up to Trump and and be a kind of counterweight. Um, so I think if Trump loses bigly, as he would say himself, um, he'll up the ante. His his reaction will be to say it was a fake election, it was all rigged, the Russians interfered with it for the, you know, for the Democrats. I mean, you know, all that mad stuff. He'll just keep going and he'll just keep saying that everything that's, everything else is happening. And perhaps start a war. And start a war. So I wrote a piece about three months ago in the Irish Times saying, look, look, watch out, watch Iran, watch, you know, the, the logic of this administration is absolutely to do with war. And you can already see it now in the last two weeks, you know, with the upping of the ante in terms of the Iranians. There's a lot of speculation that 
the deal with Putin, you know, is is uh, the Iranians are now dispensable in Syria. So go ahead and, you know, whatever you want to do with the Iranians is absolutely fine fine with us. Just give us a free hand in Syria. Um, you know, it, that is the logic. And 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 uh, it's 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 a grim logic. Is, um, uh, I had the mixed pleasure of listening to a podcast interview with Steve Bannon on my way into work this morning. The Spectator did a podcast with him. He's, as you know, he's floating around Europe and the UK at the moment uh, looking to set up a, a right-wing um, contender in the European parliamentary elections uh, next year. And the the Bannon, I suppose, the Bannon theory of the world uh, is interesting to hear in himself, although it's a bit, bit like being trapped with a madman on the bus. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it to anybody. But it essentially runs as follows, that um, the United States, that, that the white world, I suppose, although he didn't use that phrase, but it's effectively that the Judeo-Christian yes. countries need to come together to counter the threat of China, which is in turn building its own alliance with Shia Islam across across the Middle East and the Silk Road theory. And I suppose that's the nearest thing you get to a coherent overarching theory of what this movement is about, isn't it? It is, you know, uh, this may seem ridiculous, but in in one sense we're lucky, right, which, which is that they are very stupid. Like, that, that, you know, compared to the 1920s and 1930s where you had a serious program, which remember, wasn't just sort of ideological, although of course it was, but also practical, right? So, so like, you know, Mussolini did get the trains, you know, they, they did huge infrastructure projects. They got people back to work. They, they, you know, they were doing physical stuff, which was tangible and therefore could create a kind of consensus that, well, actually something is working and, you know, they're giving us things. You know, Orban isn't able to do that. Um, Trump isn't, astonishingly to me, I, I would have thought the big thing Trump would have done in his first six months was, you know, infrastructure, infrastructure, infrastructure. I'm a builder. This is what I do. Uh, you know, American jobs for American male workers, you know, exactly in the places where they're needed. Do, do all that stuff. So they don't have that. And ideologically, I think what they don't yet have, and I think this is the interesting thing about the testing, right, which is the code now is Judeo-Christian civilization, right, which is exactly, as you say, white people. So it is a race war theory. It's based in all this kind of clash of civilizations stuff, which we thought had been kind of debunked long ago, but, you know, that's that's their, their mentality. Their problem, in a way, is that they can't say white people, you know. The, the, the complete logic of this is to say, this is white and Christian, and essentially male, you know, uh, and that's what we're defending. And that's who must be the elite who take control in order to stop these, these hordes, which are both external and internal from, um, you know, emasculating us. That, that's the appeal. And you can see this online, of course, this is, that's what you get online. Their problem in a way is, is a problem of language then, you know, which is that they can't yet say that. And so th- the appeal itself is sort of incoherent, you know, it's not credible to a farmer who's selling his soybeans to China uh, in the Midwest of America that, you know, the, the Chinese are your enemy and we must go to war with China. They're saying, hold on a minute, who's going to buy my, my, who's going to buy my soybeans? And then Trump has to come up with saying, well, actually, uh, you know, I've started this trade war, but don't worry, I'm going to give you, you know, billions and billions in compensation for the fact that the Chinese mm. aren't buying your soybeans. You know, it, it, it doesn't really work in terms of the way the world is. 
But nothing so, seems to work. I mean, I was listening yeah. to Mike Pompeo um, giving testimony before the House or the Senate rather the, the other day, and he, you know, uh, at- attempting to defend the disjunction between American policy on Russia on the one hand yeah. and Trump's words on the other hand. Yeah. And it seems to me that in so many areas, I mean, on the one hand, Trump puts himself forward as a as a supporter of the military, which is pretty laughable given his own his own personal history. But on the other hand, there's a there's a, there's a large part of his base which is actually deeply opposed to foreign interventions and foreign wars, often because they're the people who provide provide the soldiers, you know? I, I, I think that's a great point, and I think the war could be his destruction um, for, for two reasons. One is exactly as you say, a huge part of Trump's appeal on the stump in the primaries was, you know, these idiots start these foreign wars, and, and you know, it's, it's not in America's interest. Ameri- you know, it was an isolationist appeal, sure. which after all has a long history and... You know, it was always very interesting being there with things like the Iraq War. I mean, you'd go to sort of mid-America somewhere, you know, and talk to people, and they were very skeptical, you know, exactly because they were, the, it was their kids who were who were fighting mm-hmm. it, and they couldn't see, they were sort of wanted to be patriotic about it and wanted to feel, yeah, we're going to go and kick ass and America's great. But they sort of knew there's something iffy about this stuff and it's not working. And... Trump tapped into a very, very deep skepticism about American foreign wars and, and interventions. And in a way, Bannon was driving this too. I mean, ba- you know, ba- Bannon's uh, ostensible ideology, you know, is is this stuff is just stupid, crazy. You know, this is the military-industrial complex. It's not the people. Uh, so so the, the populism was a sort of anti-militarist populism mm. to, to a certain extent. What happens then when your last, the big card you have to play is is a war? So that's one of the reasons I think the war is, is, is a problem. The other one, of course, is, is that Trump's, this is where Trump's personality then becomes really crucial, you know. So it's, it's one thing having inherited a very stable economy from Obama, ironically, the cost, immediate cost of Trump's sort of craziness is, is not that obvious to most people, you know. They, they see it as a bit of entertainment. If you're in the middle of a war and you've got somebody tweeting madly, you know, and you've got the sheer instability of a chain of command, for example, I mean, can you imagine trying to run something with this guy? You know, it's it's like it would, that. The parallels with the 1940s would be would be obvious. You know, the sort of Hitler in his last stages of drug demented craziness. You know, trying to get orders, trying to figure out, you know, what's the strategy here. Um, so for for both of those reasons, I think it, it's possible that the the last big play might, in fact, be the last big play. You know that 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 playing the war card might be, in some way, what would destroy him. Because given also that um, there's a sort of there's a, there's a postmodern quality to Trumpism, as there is yeah. to as there is to much much of politics these days, yeah. and people have have remarked on the way that a, a sort of a model for postmodern totalitarianism has been offered by Putin's Russia, um, where you just flood your society with lies so that everybody yeah. everybody believes that everything is a lie. Yeah. And so everything becomes performative, whether that performance being your leader riding around stripped to the waist on a horse yeah. or whether I'm doing something, something, something absurd in the United States. But nothing actually really changes, you know, in, in, in the end. Yeah. And I wonder, and that, you know, that, that requires a deep cynicism on the part of the population to, for, for that actually to work. But if something happens like a war, that that changes. Yes, those it's real. It's real. I, th- I think that's absolutely right. Yeah. You see, the 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 attraction of the war is 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 also why it's so dangerous, right? So the attraction of going to war is is precisely that it's real, given that so much of Trumpism is unreal. You know, yeah. so so the steel plants are not coming back to Ohio. You know, the wall is not going to be built. 
Muslims in general are not going to be banned from entering the United States. You know, he, he cannot do those things. Um, so much of the actual promise is 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 completely vapid, which was not true of fascism. You know, mm. classic fascism did what it said on the tin. It was action. Know. The word action it did was action, central you know, to, to it, fascism. Uh, they built the autobahns. They mm. built the autostradas. They, they murdered vast numbers of people. They built, you know, they did what they said they were going to do. Trump cannot do what he said he was going to do. So the attraction then is, well, the war is, is real, right? It's, it's, it's a sort of an event. It is action, exactly as you say. But of course, the problem with it is, is, is precisely that as well, which is that it is real and therefore maybe a different kind of thinking is applied to it. So, so far, the extraordinary thing is that the, the Trump base is so solid, even though he's not doing whatever he said he was going to do. And part of this, I think, is a kind of compensation that in a way it doesn't matter because the liberals hate him. And they're suffering, and that's enough for the moment. Somebody yeah. said to me this phrase I hadn't heard, but a, a Republican said to me in, in the states last year. He said, "You know, the, our base is dancing in the end zone," which I think is a phrase from American football. You know, when you when you do the touchdown, you dance in the end zone. You know, and they're still dancing in the end zone. You know, mm. it's it's this triumph over all of this hated liberalism is still enough to kind of keep it going, so long as they're hurting a lot. It doesn't matter that we're our hurt hasn't really diminished. That gets you so far until you have something real where people are actually getting hurt and where it, it, it sort of so starkly counteracts Trump's isolationist appeal. You know, why are we going to spend all this money to go off and who, who, why do we care about Iran? You know, and obviously you can do the classic things of building up the threat and, you know, that, but do people believe that stuff after Iraq? You know, even in the fake news environment, even in the environment where nothing is true and therefore it doesn't matter. I still think there's been a build-up of a sort of deep skepticism in people's heads about the basic appeal that we've got to get them before they get us. Think about why did Trump's base switch so quickly from saying North Korea is an existential threat to, you know, they're our friends and isn't Trump brilliant so he should get the Nobel Peace Prize, you know? Because they know it's all unreal, you know. Yeah, because there wasn't anything. There were, there were yeah. no stakes. There really, were no as stakes far, yeah. as far as they were yeah. concerned. Yeah. Oddly enough, there I were mean, stakes. There, actually. Yeah, I mean, oddly <laughs> enough, you know, the weird thing is that that North Korea was posing a threat in a yeah. way that Iran isn't. Yeah. Um, but but going through those cycles, it's it's quite hard to build up a thing about you know the Iranians are building ballistic missiles and they're going to target Boston tomorrow. You know, it, I just I think people say that's they know it's postmodern in a way. They they know it's a story. And it's it's fine so long as it's a story, and then you can come up with another story tomorrow. He can he can he can go and hug an Ayatollah mm. and get the Nobel Peace Prize, you know. But if it get if it gets real, you know, where our boys are invading Iran, um, or even if we start sort of massive bombing or you know whatever would would whatever way it would go, it it, it perhaps just kind of opens up those false lines between the postmodern and 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 the real, you know. Speaking of gaps between the real and the and the imagined. Uh, I, I just wanted to mention a bit of, but always nice to mention a bit of poetry at the end of a discussion like this. You've got a piece in this weekend's Irish Times about WB Yeats, who figures a lot uh, on social media these days, apparently. Yeah, yeah. you know, I, I, I was suggesting, I was opening the Yeats Summer School last week and, and I was suggesting that we, uh, you know, po- uh, uh, anthropologists and economists and, and sociologists go to great trouble to try to figure out, can you do an, an index of how the world is faring, you know, and I was just suggesting the Yeats test, you know, which is the, the rule that would be the more... William Butler Yeats is being quoted in public discourse, the worse things are. You know? And I think it's an invariable rule. 
I, I would suggest the kind of counter example that would prove this would be the Heaney index. You know, if, if Heaney's been quoted, things are pretty good. Hope and history are rising. Right. You know, but if, it's, it's, if it's, things are falling things apart, things are falling apart. Center is not holding, <laughs> and some rough beast is slouching towards the White House. They they are incredibly resonant lines, though, aren't they? For I mean, they they always seem to be resonant, but they seem particularly resonant. They at the do, moment, you know, yeah. and and there are they are everywhere, and they're everywhere internationally in Africa, in India, in 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 America, you know, all, all over the world. And you kind of realize, in a way, it just reminds us what a genius Yates was, you know that. He was obviously picking up on things like the Bolshevik Revolution or the the turbulence of the 1930s and all that, but and in Ireland, of course, as well. But he was able to write in a way that he just could create phrases that do genuinely seem to be applicable to almost any circumstance. One of the fascinating things is both the right and the left are using X. You know, you'll you'll find Zizek using him, and you'll find uh, uh, Peterson using him. You know, whatever figures you 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 wish to cite, you know, you'll find they've got a they've got a Yeats quotation. Somewhere. But is there something there? I mean the the, the poem those lines come from was written, what, in 1917, 1918, towards the end of the First yeah, World War? Yeah, it seems to finished around 1919. He didn't 1919. publish it until the 1920s. Yeah. Again, so very, it's exactly that moment, it is if that we moment. are drawing those equivalents, it's exactly uh, the moment. Well, it is, you know, and, and actually... Um, one of the one of the worries, you know, it's a sort of half facetious piece, but one of the worries is that, in a way, the overuse of Yeats, you know, these phrases mm. are becoming cliches, you know, and and the one useful thing about having those phrases is it reminds us that we've been through this before, folks, and that has two good effects. I mean, one is it stops us from being completely hysterical and panicking, and the other is it sort of says, well, okay, how did it how did it work out for us the last time? <laughs> you know, that that we actually we do need to be aware. Not, we're not shrieking about saying this is going towards fascism now, but equally we're not saying this is not what it would look like if we were in a pre-fascist state. But Yeats, when he was writing those, he, I mean, nobody knew in the 1920s, but what they were observing, were, what he was observing and turning into art was a set of circumstances of a kind of a sense of, of dislocation, of lost moorings, of an uncertain future. Yes, you know, and of course he was writing it from a sort of authoritarian point sure. of view. You know, he was worried about the Bolshevik Revolution was actually the, the, the thing that triggered that poem. And, you know, he was worried about the rise of the, the unwashed masses and all of that. Um, but in a, in a way, it doesn't matter because he was so brilliant at not. So it's not a poem about the Bolshevik Revolution, even though that's what he's writing about. Just as in my, even a poem called Easter 1916 about that, you know, it's, you read it, it's actually not really about the 1916 rising. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he was brilliant at being able to create these phrases, like even out of Ireland, you know, what, what better phrase could you have about Brexit, you know, than we are we are locked in and the key is turned on our uncertainty, you know, which was about the Irish Civil War, you know, but but it, it, he, he could hammer out these phrases that, that, that get to the psychological sense of what it's like to be in these kinds of times rather than this particular moment, this particular set of circumstances, you know, and it, it, it's, it's, it's no harm for us in a way to be reminded that uh, maybe the period of, you know, stable democracy that we took for granted is the exception and not the rule. Having said all that, the most literal-minded reader couldn't help but notice the uh, the direct parallels. You quote, I'd never seen these lines before, from The Tower. The yeah. fact, first of all, that the poem is called The Tower. Yeah. Um, shall I read them or shall you? Oh, you, you read them, please. Okay, here we go. There lurches past his great eyes without thought under the shadow of stupid straw pale locks, that insolent fiend. <laughs> That's fabulous, isn't it? I mean, 
uh, I, I was kind of when I was thinking about this piece, I was I was saying, you know, we 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 need more phrases to use because the the you know the the over use of them becomes cliche. So there's loads of them in 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 Yates, and this is one that's never used. Nobody ever talks about. It, but the the stupid straw pale locks is he's <laughs> definitely seeing something. You know, if you think about Trump and you think about Boris Johnson and you know the Gerd Wilder is uh, there. Wilder, a lot, a lot like, of it, why yeah. do sort of right wing um, irresponsible men have this weird hair? <laughs> you know, and his use of the word stupid locks, I think, is kind of very, very striking, uh, and you know, he thought of himself as as a kind of shaman, you know, who was who was um, taking these images not out of the rational mind, but out of the sort of uh, anima mundi, the, the sort of mind of the world, you know. And um, you know, I, when I was a student, I used to laugh at the stupidity of thinking of this, but um, you know, the more you go on, you think, oh my God, maybe he was, you know, <laughs> maybe he was seeing something, uh, maybe he had some kind of power of divination, you know, that these these creatures <laughs> emerging from his poems into our reality. Internet Hill, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks a lot. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon. And remember, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider may be. And you can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. Your views are always very welcome. You can mail me at hlinhan at irishtimes.com or you can always find me on Twitter. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks for listening.